Well, good morning. Tiffany, Aaron, Paxton, everybody, thank you all. Thank you all so much. Uh, how's everybody doing? Good. Hey, Nehemiah 1 is where we're going to be. Everybody grab your Bible, turn to Nehemiah 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, we'll have it on the screen. Nehemiah 1 is where we're going to be today. Uh, we'll jump in and do some recap uh, of Ezra and walk toward that in just a moment. Hey, I want to address and jump in right before uh, we get started and do it in this moment rather than at the end of the service because uh, today at the end of the service uh, we have two students being baptized which we're incredibly excited about, Sims, Molly, uh, and then three families joining. So uh, we're going to try to put the announcement spot right here uh, and, and so we can really give and honor that time toward the end of the service. Uh, mentioned last week uh, that in our nature and growing as a church uh, and all the things that we're seeking to do to minister to one another and to this community at large, uh, our staff is starting to grow a little bit. One of those ways is um, to just kind of give you some background and some history. Uh, some of you are saying, man, this is my first time here today. I don't, don't really want the background and history. I promise I'll be super fast. Uh, when we started uh, over three years ago in the school, in the elementary school, um, Brian Hill began leading our children's ministry. And he has done a fantastic job. He's been not only an encouragement and delight to our staff, uh, but has loved children and families well, preaching the gospel and helping them experience God in deep ways. We're greatly, greatly thankful. Brian has been working and doing that on a part-time basis. Uh, as, as we've grown uh, as a church, we've seen the need to expand this role to, to full-time, and we're terribly excited about it to think that we have enough uh, kids and ministry opportunities that warrant uh, a full-time children's pastor. And so over the last several months, we've prayed and searched and looked and took applications uh, and ended up in a spot where uh, we believe that the Lord is calling us to, to vote in uh, Ben Stevenson uh, as our children's pastor uh, and we are really, really excited about it. Uh, deeply, deeply in love with the Lord. Great, incredible theological mind. Awesome. Uh, just, just a person who has a deep uh, philosophy of ministry, uh, of seeing children connect with the truth of God's word uh, and really helping parents come alongside them to be the chief disciple maker in the life of their child so that that child can know the Lord more. Really, really excited about this. Uh, to get to this process, it was, it was uh, applications and numerous interviews and opportunities to talk with parents and families and community group leaders uh, and, and our Chelsea leadership team and, and a host of others in addition to our senior leadership uh, that drew us to the place where we felt like the Lord was calling Ben here. And so, that being said, we're going to vote on Ben next week. It's a, it's a pastoral role. He's ordained as a pastor, so it, it's going to be a role that we vote in according to our bylaws as a church. So everybody, I know you're getting pumped to vote on the 18th, right? Um, but look, we, we know uh, that, that we want our church to affirm this decision and to stand with our leadership and for you guys to understand that we're, we're seeking to pursue the Lord to the best of our ability at all times for the good of God's people, that we might grow in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. That being said, we want to present you an opportunity to get to know Ben. So that's tonight at 5 p.m. here in the worship room. Uh, so uh, if, if you have an opportunity, if you have a child uh, in children's ministry, and if, or if you're just in the church and say, hey, look, I, I want to walk with the church and see 
what we're doing here and who's coming alongside and who's joining us, we just encourage you to come. I think it'd be a really, really helpful thing. We want to be as transparent as we can possibly be. Look, our goal is to, is to equip you for the works of ministry and to come alongside you in ministry. Uh, and so in order to do that, you need to do it with us. We need to do it together. So that's why we want to get together at 5 tonight. Uh, if you're available, we'd love for you to come. Just ask any questions you have. Uh, I'll, ask, I'll ask some of Ben as well so you can kind of get to know him. Super excited about that. All right, uh, Nehemiah 1 is where we're going to be today, and I want to kind of recap and, and, and kind of run fast here a little bit as we launch into the text this morning. Uh, but we mentioned at the outset of this series with the theme of return, rebuild, renew, what's happening in these two books that we find in Scripture in Ezra and Nehemiah is, is, a, is a history uh, of God's people. And, and typically, although these, although these books are divided in your Bible that you hold before you today, this is, this is really one linear story. It's really one work. Where we left off uh, in Ezra in a very precarious place last week, uh, looking at uh, a picture of God's covenant people who have come out of exile, as Jeremiah prophesied, they come out of exile, they come back to Judah, to Jerusalem, there's the temple that we find that's rebuilt, they encounter opposition, Ezra seeks to, to draw God's people back into accordance, spiritual purity, a love of God alone uh, through the teaching of the Torah law, and, and we continually see him having to confess on behalf of the people because God's people are intermarrying with other people who are letting their gods seep into the culture. And there's just a, a deep recognition in Ezra that, that God's people are broken. God's people are broken. They're failing to trust the Lord wholeheartedly. They're, they're not seeking after Him. Uh, and so, so God cleanses. And, and through this episode of brokenness, God cleanses His people and is trying to draw them back to Himself um, so we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah, where we find ourselves today, approximately 13-ish years beyond the end of Ezra, where we left off, we're going to see these themes continue to emerge, that there is a returning, rebuilding, and renewal taking place. Um, what happens here on the front end of Nehemiah, as we'll read in a moment, is that he is confronted with the reality of what has happened in Jerusalem. Uh, and the, the picture of the destruction that he sees is not relative to the temple and foundation as much as it is the walls. There's this special endeavor that, that he's drawn into to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls around the city, the temple. Um, and, and you're going to see a number of things happen in this book, a lot of which are similar to Ezra, these themes of rebuilding. So this time, again, it's the walls instead of the temple. You're also going to see God's wayward people, God's wayward people struggling to love him. But at the same time, we're really going to see in the, in the wall construction that Nehemiah undertakes some really incredible examples of leadership some really incredible examples of, of trust in God's faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, and honestly, an Israel that is unified in a way that we really haven't seen likely historically since, since the parting of the Red Sea. Since this, this, through Ezra and Nehemiah, this new exodus out of exile of sorts really mirrors in a way kind of this moment in Nehemiah, this wall construction, the first kind of time we've seen in a long time that Israel is, is unified in a deep way, this remnant has come together and is seeking to trust the Lord. All those things are happening. But at the crux of that is this character, this person, Nehemiah. 
And for us to understand all of those things that will take place historically in the book of Nehemiah and where God's people are in his story, in the narrative that we see as scripture, the history of God and his people, we got to know who Nehemiah is. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look into chapter 1. It's 11 verses. We're going to read these verses, and we're going to find in these verses a challenge, something that's happened, how Nehemiah confronts that, what he does in that moment of pain, and then how what he does in prayer is a model for us as believers and how we can seek to live and lead uh, those that are in our care. So, uh, if you will, read with me. This is Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. It says this, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the months of of Hislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nehemiah is encountered with this news from Hanani and those that come with him about the people in Judah, about the people in Jerusalem and the state of Jerusalem. One really interesting thing to notice is that it says the remnant there, so these people, the, the, the people left, those people who are seeking to follow the Lord, these Jews, the, rem, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, it says two things about them. One, that they're in great trouble. So, so in one sense, there's actually a, a, a true fear Uh, for physical well-being, so they're in trouble, but also it says shame. So there's this emotional component. One of the things that we realize right off the bat is that the remnant, the people that are in Jerusalem, the people that we left at the end of the story in Ezra, these are people that are still in great trouble politically, physically in many ways, and also shame. So the totality of who they are is in peril. Their physical well-being and also their emotional well-being. What happens in this moment, what we see is the example of this is that the Jerusalem, the wall, is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah is cut to the heart. He's viscerally 
emotionally, spiritually, even physically, I would say, through, through the weeping that we find in verse 4, he's distraught at what is happening. There's this, there's this deep reaction that permeates from him that comes out and says, this is not okay. I'm affected, really genuinely affected. Now, um, I don't want to be a bummer here at the start, but I do want to kind of launch in uh, to kind of give us a corollary or a parallel with our own lives. I want us to think about this for a moment. Um, and, and for those of us that have walked through experiences of pain uh, and, and tough times, this, this, this will be challenging. Uh, but look, I, I want you to really think about this. Where do you go in times of pain and in times of peril? When things are not well, when you receive that phone call you never intended to receive or never expected, when you walk to a place where, where, where you're emotionally distraught, and, and look, I, I look around this room and so I, I know a number of your stories, and a number of you know mine, um, just hard stuff that we've all walked through that we don't escape. We put on this flesh and then we're going to go through it, it's going to happen. But what do we do when we're confronted with moments of pain, with moments of peril. I think the unique thing that we're going to see, particularly in verse 4, that really shapes the rest of this section in this prayer is something that is incredibly unique in what Nehemiah does. And here's why I would say that. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't like pain. I'm just not a big fan of it. Um, I think it's largely unnecessary most of the time. Uh, I just, I don't like to be in pain. To be candid, I don't really know that many people who do, all right? Um, and I also, I, I typically have a pretty good action plan, as I think most of us do. Uh, when we're in pain, what do we do? We do something about it. We fix it. We escape it. It's, 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 it's medicine, or it's like that, you know, it's like that joke. It's like, hey, doc, I broke my arm in two places, and the doc's like, hey, you should stay out of those places, you know? Um, <laughs> Look, we, we remove ourselves from situations, from places where, where pain attacks us, where we experience that. Um, look, I, I, think, I think I could probably identify with a lot of you, and you could identify with me in this. When there's a problem, particularly one with pain, we want to fix it. We want to fix it. We want to change the circumstance. We want to end what's happening. We do that by doing something different. We do something else. We take action. I want you to notice in this moment of deep pain, when Nehemiah is talking, uh, or, or is hearing of, rather, the, the, the place that, that his people are in, the people who love God, the people who love his statutes, who love his commands, the place that they're in is one of brokenness and pain. What does he do? What's the action that he takes? Look at verse 4. It says this, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is what Nehemiah does. It looks strange to people in a culture like ours. It really does. In this moment... We know that he's fasting and praying. It says he continued doing that, so we know that that's his posture, that he, he's speaking to, he's talking to, he's engaging with the Lord. But he does this thing where he grieves and he mourns. Then run to fix it. 
he grieves, he mourns, and he, he throws himself into the moment and experiences that pain. He doesn't just run from it. But that happens, that weeping, that mourning happens in a context. It happens in a place. Look at what it says. I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here's what's indicative about that phrase. That mourning, that grieving, that weeping that takes place, it takes place in the context of prayer. It takes place in the context of engagement with the Lord. Here's what's happening in this moment. We learn about the character of Nehemiah. And that for Nehemiah, prayer is action. Prayer is action. Going to the Lord, depending on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, giving yourself to, availing yourself by by weeping, by grieving, being who you are with the Lord in prayer is action. At the sign of this peril, at the sign of this trouble, that is what he does. Because here's what, what, what's happening in this moment. Before we see all the great things that Nehemiah is going to do, before, before the construction of the wall that we'll, we'll begin seeing in chapter 3, and before his journey, before, uh, before a pagan king who God is working in the heart of allows him to go, and he should have no business doing this or, or asking the question or being able to go, before all of those incredible things that God does happens. Before of all the things he does, God is forming Jeremiah and making him into who he is. We see Jeremiah's character come before his competency. For all the amazing things that... that, that, I keep saying Jeremiah, don't I? Didn't I say that again? I think I said Jeremiah. I meant Nehemiah. I'm really sorry. Like legitimately sorry. That stinks. Um, So so what's happening is, is Nehemiah is is before all these things happen, he's being formed, he's being made. Here's the principle that comes from this. Um, What God will do through Nehemiah is because of who God is to Nehemiah. Think about that. What God will do through him is because of who God is to him. He's developing him as one who loves him, who trusts him, who surrenders, who runs to him. Um, But Nehemiah, we will see, is one that that will seek to fix, to remedy the situation. He will seek to to bring an end to not only the the shame that Israel is experiencing, but also the great trouble they're in and the restoration of the wall which reveals this trouble and shame and the place that the people of Israel are in. God is doing something in him before he goes and does stuff for God. Um, Here's what I would say. Um, I want to liken this into kind of where we are, truly just in a really introspective moment uh, in the life of our church and particularly our campus. Um, I I love Chelsea. I love this place. Uh, I'm incredibly thankful to be here. I'm incredibly thankful that, that God has put this church, this, this, this place here at, for a time such as this. And I look around this city, and I'm really, really excited. Um, there are great things happening. So, like, we got an auto zone, all right? That's, that's, that's done. Uh, but look, there's a Buffalo Wild Wings that's popping up and an Arby's. And look, look, these are things to be excited about. I'm not saying this tongue-in-cheek. 
You, and you know this because you'll go there because I'll see you there after church one Sunday. Um, but look, look these, these, are, these are things that are exciting. Incredible things are happening in this place. But I also look around and I see brokenness. Anybody else look around and see, even in a beautiful little city like Chelsea, just the brokenness, just the pain, the, the great trouble that people are in from, from poverty-type situations to abuse situations, the shame that they live in, people that we know and interact with and, and, and commune with in, in different ways every day, and they're dealing with shame issues in their life. I look out at those people that live in our little community, and I want to do something about it. I want to do something about it. Um, Nehemiah is a dreamer. He longs to do something great for the Lord. When you look out at the peril of, of life and things around you, does anybody ever want to do something great for the Lord? I do too. I do too. I want to do something great to help people experience the gospel to help people recognize that they are loved, that grace would be recognized in their life, that they could have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that lives could be transformed, that people could know Jesus. But here's what Nehemiah teaches us in this moment. If you want to do things for God, go be with God. These things don't happen outside of being with God. What does Nehemiah do? Does he leap to, to a strategy plan? Does he build a team around him? No, here's what he does. In all humility and brokenness, he goes to God. That's his action plan. That's first. You want to do things for God? You want to see the world transformed? You want to see Chelsea come to know the Lord in a deep way? You know where that starts? That starts with us being with God. Corporately and personally. That's where it begins. Uh, look down into verse 5. And we're going to look into this prayer. Uh, and before Nehemiah begins to do these things for God, we see how he's with God in some very distinct ways of how he engages. Uh, verse 5 says this, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what Nehemiah is saying in this moment, his heart is drawn to remembrance of who God is, uh, but he doesn't just cry out and say, help me. This is not like, you guys know those like drive-by prayers? Those like drive-by prayers where we're like, God, there's just a lot of stuff going on and it's terrible and would you help me? All right, see you later. Right? I, I, you laugh and I know, because that's true of me too. We, we, we struggle with this tendency to just just continue moving and just ask God in this very cursory way to help us in this moment. Or it's some sort of help in this kind of higher power way. Just like, I know you're out there and you're beyond and you're bigger, so, so I, I, can't, I can't do it. Will somebody do it? You're the next best option. That's not what this is. He's not simply reaching out and trying to remedy this in a selfish way. He prays, and in the midst of his prayer, two things really emerge. The first is this, he recognizes who God is and who he's not. The majesty of God puts him in his place. This is what he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He makes clear through the reference to heaven that God is beyond him, that he's the creator of all. This should be the core of our posture of prayer. This should be at the core of our posture of prayer. When we seek to pray to the Lord, when we engage with the Lord, 
in a situation of peril or a situation of pleasure. It ought to begin with our recognition of a deep reverence of who God is. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he teaches us to pray in this way. Our Father, where? In heaven. The hallowed be thy name. There's a connection there. This picture of the God who is the creator, sustainer, redeemer, comforter. But, uh, but of all things, he is the one who is beyond, who is above, who is omnipotent, who is powerful in every way imaginable. That God is beyond. There ought to be deep reverence from that. But that's the first thing. But here's the second thing, even within this verse. It's the awesome God who does what? Who keeps covenant, look at what it says, and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So Nehemiah makes clear that though God is beyond, he is not far off from us. In fact, he is very near. Well, how can we say that? How can we say that he's near? Because we're not talking about proximity. We're not talking about location. But Nehemiah recognizes God's nearness to his people, the faithful, steadfast love that he has for his people. So that word, that, that steadfast love, it's a version of, it's a, it's a, it's a form of this word, hesed. And you've got to say it with that weird like coffee thing in it, all right? It's hesed. And here's what it is. It's God's loyal love. It's a loyal love that is characterized by goodness and kindness. It's merciful. It's kind. This is a personal love. This is not a distant love. Has anybody ever experienced mercy and goodness and kindness from afar? I haven't. Those are personal things. Those are the interaction between, that's a result of interaction between two persons. So this is the personal nature of God. So on one hand, Nehemiah sees God as one to be observed with deep reverence or recognition as God of creator of all. And yet also, that God is near. He's seen God love his people. So this is the personal nature as Jesus teaches to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. We see the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. A phrase that in many ways to people in this day would have been downright heretical. To people who barely even say Yahweh or, or not even write his name to call God Father. This is what Jesus teaches. And even Nehemiah is approaching this and seeing the nearness of God. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Um, I guess a little over a year ago, maybe more, um, we walked through a series called Clarity. Uh, where we walked through the Gospel of Mark. Anybody remember that? Uh, we walked through the Gospel of Mark, and a, a large portion of it really hinged on 115, and it's what Jesus says at the inception of his ministry. In Mark's Gospel, this, this is the entry point, this is the understanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Um, this is what Mark 115, it says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what's happening in this moment. Um, we see that phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand. But is at hand is a Greek rendering of a word that means this, near. It means that the kingdom of God is near. To, to be more specific... 
is at hand really gives the connotation that it is I come near. That it's first person. So, so a way to read this, to understand this, would be the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near in me. I, Jesus, come near, repent, and believe the gospel. So even in Nehemiah, we're seeing this picture of the nearness of God. God didn't just come near in Jesus for the first time. He did it in the fullness of time. But he's always been in pursuit of his people. He's always been running to them, following them, seeking to be loving to them. Not in a distant way, but in nearness. So here's the next thing. When we go to pray, prayer is is the action. When we go to pray, this should be our posture. We revere God's greatness. We don't miss that. We revere God's greatness, His power, His majesty. But then we reflect on the reality of His nearness. That this God comes close to us. And to you and me, on the other side of this story, on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection, that nearness has come from God in Jesus. And now personally we experience it through His Spirit. Looking at verse 6, it says this, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sins. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here's what's happening in this moment. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open. God, hear me. God, see me. But here's the wild thing. He knows that God sees him because he acknowledges his own sin. He acknowledges his own sin, the brokenness that has come between he and God. He knows that God sees that sin. He knows that God sees him. And so what happens when we know God sees us? This is what happens. When we pray, it should be characterized by confession. Our prayers ought to be characterized by confession. Now look, at this point, Nehemiah, you look at him and you're like, look, I I don't really see anybody in active sin. I don't don't see him sinning in in any particular way. And yet this this confession of sin. You're like, hey, I I know a number of things that he's going to go on to do in this work. I've read this text a number of times. I've seen in the scriptures this man of God that he is. And yet he's at 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 the inception of this. His prayer is, is, is really characterized by confession. What is that? Well, we see in this leader that he's going to become, this person, he not only takes on individual confession, which we see following down uh, in, verse, in verse 7 as well, but also corporate confession. He's a lot like Ezra in this. He's brokenhearted at the faithlessness of God's people. He places himself within the community of faith with others who are seeking to follow the Lord but have sinned. So you notice the individual and corporate nature of his confession. And look, in the Western world, we just don't do this really well. A, a, a lot of times that's just because everything, and you guys like particularly, you guys are like the product of this, right? And, and this is how the world is failing you, and all of us too. But everything's individualized. 
Everything in your whole world is like crafted to be like my own thread or my own feed or my own algorithm or all these things. But it's happening to us too. It's happening to all of us that these, that these things, that life, all, all of it is about us. It's about us. It's about me. This is where the phrase comes from, right? Living your best life. Well, living your best life is not living your life at all. It's living the life of Christ. I died and I no longer live. But Christ lives within me. The life I live, I live by faith in the body. God loved me and gave himself for me through his son. That's what life looks like, right? We live in a world where we don't do corporate stuff very much. We just like, we're, we're scattered. We struggle to sit down and eat a family meal. All of those different types of things. This is a hearkening back to an understanding of what God has done. It's not just salvation for these little individual people. It's salvation for all. It doesn't say for God so loved just you and me. It's the world. It's all. It's everyone. So, so God's plan is for us to be a family. Nehemiah sees this, and as a result, he leans in, like Ezra does as well, and confesses on behalf, not just of what he's done, but on this people that he's connected to, this family, how we've been faithless. Um, when we enter the conversation of prayer, when we begin to pray, when prayer becomes the action, and it should be in moments of peril and moments of pleasure, when prayer is the action, because it is, and we go to this place and we revere the Lord and we recognize his nearness, prayer can't be absent of confession. We must confess who we are. Um, look into verse 7. It says, We've acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servants Moses. All right, here's one thing that's really beautiful about this. I think in, when we do confess, um, our prayers are short. When we ask for stuff, our prayers are super long. You know? Um, I, don't, I don't know if, like, if Santa Claus ever gets like confessions, but he gets these like, crazy long lists of stuff that people want. Look, I, it's not fun to say this out loud, but there's a deep parallel between you and me in that, spiritually. We're, we're people that, that will ask God for all of these things, but when it comes time for confession, we're pretty quiet. This is like the drive-by prayer where you're like, God, I'm sorry for all that stuff that I've done, but it's just you're driving really fast at this point. <laughs> we just confess it quickly, but, but what Nehemiah does, what we see is this picture that he says, hey, these are the things that I've done. We haven't kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules. This isn't just some blanket thing. He's saying, look, this is where I'm broken and I'm in need. And in that confession, his heart is awakened to the deep need that he has and open to the deep grace that God gives. Look down into verse 8. It says this, 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is really, really beautiful because something amazing is happening here in this moment. Nehemiah is remembering the promises of God. He's remembering the promises of God, and he's doing it in the context of prayer to God. Now, that might seem a little strange. Why am I telling God to remember stuff that he said to me? 
Does that seem weird? But it's not weird, and here's why. What he's talking about in these moments, I want you to look to this. Look at the word gather. Look at the word outcast. Look at the word bring them. Look at the word peoples. All of these things, the things that he's saying, these are echoes of Deuteronomy chapter 30. These are echoes of the very teaching of the law. What, what Nehemiah is doing is not only praying to him and saying to him, God, this is what you've said. He is praying to God the promises of God. And it might look like it's a strategy to say, God, don't forget, remember who you are. You said you were going to do this. But it's in that moment that it's Nehemiah that remembers that God will do these things. That he will do these things. He sees that in reminding God of his promises, actually God reminding and reassuring him of who he is and what he says will come to pass. I want us to look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, and see the parallel here and see the corollary. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, God's people have been driven to nations, And return to the Lord your God, that's where they seek to find themselves, you and your children, uh, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. So at the very beginning, we're getting the crux of this. Here's the point, that the people of God would follow him with all their heart and with all their soul. Okay, That's right here in verse 2 at the front end of this. Look at it in verse 3. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you. This sounds like Nehemiah's prayer. Again, from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. All of these amazing things that would happen. And why? Look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Here's what's happening in this moment. We see a couple of things. One, this idea of heart and soul. Um, You look back into the early commandment, the law in Deuteronomy, the teaching, the, the love your God with heart and soul. This is what we see Jesus offering in the New Testament as the greatest commandment. When he's asked what the greatest commandment, the love God with your heart, your soul, with all your strength. And the second, like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, this comes from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, what we have is, is a presentation of law, but that law, it means teaching. It means the very teaching of God. So in this moment, Nehemiah is quoting back these, these Torah scriptures, the very heart of God for his people. In this moment, we get a reminder, a picture of God's plan. The storyline of all this is not a wall. The storyline of all this is not who they are politically. That's that's not what is happening. In this moment, we get a picture of God's heart, that his people would love him with all their heart, with all their soul. We read in Jeremiah 31 that God's people are to be a people 
they don't just have the law, the teaching written on stone, but written on their what? Their hearts. We look into Ezekiel 36. Stone hearts are, are, are to be traded for hearts of flesh. And God's spirit is to come and live within the people. We see this. What Nehemiah is praying is not just the theme of where he is in the moment or the theme of the Old Testament, but it's the entirety of the story of God. When we pray God's promises, when we pray God's promises to him, here's what happens. We are drawn into the grand scope of all of life. In this moment, when Nehemiah prays this prayer, he's drawn back into the point. He's drawn back into the center of everything. That come what may, as we'll see in chapters 2 and beyond, with the journey to Jerusalem, the construction of the wall, all of that stuff, at the core of this is the love of God. That's what Nehemiah and all of Scripture is about. It's about returning to the Lord, rebuilding and understanding and renewing, being renewed in relationship. For us, it looks like this. We return to God. We see our sin, we're broken, and we seek to return to God. We rebuild our understanding of Him as the gospel is set in place, and we're renewed as Christ regenerates us, as God makes us new through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Spirit that comes to live inside of us when we trust Him, when we surrender, when we repent and believe the gospel. When we pray the promises of God, we see the heart of God And for us, on this side of the cross and the tomb, we see the new heart that he's given us in Jesus. When we pray God's promises, everything comes back to center. Everything comes back to center. You know those people who who spiritually, that that you see and you want to be like? Those people that spiritually are your your role models, who spiritually got it together? Those people, I promise you they're praying God's promises. They're praying God's promises. Back to him consistently. You'll you'll hear just just scripture just flow out of them. And you know what happens? Because of that, they're drawn into the depth of the reality of what the core of life is. It's that living their best life is in the truth of the gospel. And then look down into verses 10 and 11 as we close the chapter. And he talks about the people, um, the remnant. And he says, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Look at This is, this is incredible. Um, one, he continually asks for God's ear. For himself and for others. And then he says this. Give success to your servant today. As as Nehemiah is approaching this place where the physical action will follow the action of dependence on the Lord in prayer. So this action of dependence on the Lord in prayer. And now this physical, this, this getting out and doing something, going forward, moving, making decisions, trying to fix, trying to remedy. This action is taking place. Before that happens, he uses this phrase and he says, Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy. Here's what we know. Here's what we recognize. Here's what we see. 
You're going to see this emerge in chapter 2, verse 18. If you look down before you, if, you, if you've got your Bible, you can look into chapter 2, verse 18, and you'll see this phrase, and you'll see it again in Nehemiah. It's going to, it's going to creep up, and, and it's, it's the theme, it's the storyline, and I could, I could argue uh, providentially for all of Scripture in every way that Ezra phrase, the good hand of the Lord is upon me. The hand of the Lord is upon me. Nehemiah knows that, that what, whatever success comes, it is from the Lord. It's from His goodness, His benevolence, His care, His mercy, His love, not what He does. That's the point of this. This isn't about what He's going to do. It's about who He's becoming. And who He is becoming and who He is is one who trusts in the Lord. Because He depends on Him. God will grant him success, but he recognizes that success comes from him. When we pray, we can ask boldly for God to grant us success when we recognize that that success doesn't come from us. That every good and perfect thing comes from the Father above. So even in the midst of that recognition of God being great and beyond and vast, that he's near in this way. James 1.17 would say it this way, right? That, 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 that the Father gives every good and perfect gift. You ever been given a gift from far off? Maybe lottery. If somebody's won the lottery, maybe. But apart from that, I've never gotten gifts from far off. They come from nearness. They come from closeness. A gift is something you give someone you care about to show affection, to show care, to show, to show love. God is near, and he's giving success. But it's in this very particular way. It says, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man that Nehemiah prays about? Well, if you haven't, spoiler alerted, and read uh, this, I know a number of you have read this scripture before and you know this story. But when it says, who is this man? It's referring to the king. It's referring to Artaxerxes. Nehemiah will go to him and he should have no business and no place to ask him a question that would allow him to return to Jerusalem and to begin the process of rebuilding the walls. We'll see that in chapter 2. But for the moment, here's what we understand. It says, Now I was a cupbearer to the king. This is who Nehemiah is. He's a cupbearer to the king. This is what a cupbearer is. Uh, he's a high official to the royal household. Uh, the cupbearer, uh, here's what he is. He's like the sommelier. He, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's picking out the wine. For the king, but he's doing it in a very strategic way as well. This isn't just like, well, here's a vintage this, and you'll like this, right? And it pairs well with this kind of meat. No, that's not just what he's doing. He's also protecting the king. Because the cupbearer would make sure that the wine that the king was to drink wouldn't be poisoned. So in a sense, he's there for the king's pleasure, but he's also there for the king's protection. He's there for his protection. This does something really, really unique. It gives him access to the king. God puts him in this place where he has access to the king's presence consistently. Now, culturally, historically, you need to understand, and I do as well, to, to understand the fact that, that even as a cupbearer, this doesn't mean like he's got the king's ear. All the, his, his job is to bear the cup, not to talk about stuff. Right? That, that's, that's who he's called to be. And yet God has mercy on Nehemiah and puts him in this place where he's able to do incredible things. 
He's able to lead God's people, to, to see them united in a way that, that it, they haven't been united in ages, to, 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 to demonstrate a picture of God's providence, of his hand on him, of building and leading. Um, look, just as a quick aside, the word Nehemiah, um, it's, it's, it's composed of two different words, uh, Nehem and Yah, and that's where we get Nehemiah, all right? So Yah is, is short for Yahweh, but it's a component of meaning God. And then Nahem means comfort. So his name means the God, or it means God of comfort, or one who comforts by God's presence. Here, here's the unique thing. God will use Nehemiah to comfort his people, to strengthen his people, to help them remember him. Through this wild circumstance of being placed in the presence of the king. It's an incredible story. I'm really, really looking forward uh, to the next few weeks as we walk uh, through this. I, I want to I talk about uh, three very specific things um, and, then, uh, and, and then one kind of final thought. Um, here's the three things. If you want to do things for God, if you want to experience God transform the lives of those around you, I know many of us in this room love Jesus and we long to see others know Jesus. We want to lead people. And look, you're in this room, all of you are leaders. Somehow you're a leader in your family. You're, you're a leader in your marriage. You're a leader with your children. You're a leader in friendships. You're a leader in, in relationships at work. All of these things. And, and if you're God's child, I know you. You have a desire to see people loved and to see people experience. God, where are you leading from? Where are you leading from? Are you leading from the things that you do? Are you out trying to do things for God without being with God? The prerequisite, the thing that we have to do in order to do things for God, to love a broken world, the world that we love, parts of our families that are broken, issues in a number of our lives that are broken, in order to to see those repaired, to do things for those situations, we got to go be with God. we got to go be with God. Go spend time, depend on the Lord in prayer. That's your call to immediate action. Here's how. Character precedes competency. God raises up Nehemiah. He builds his character before he builds his skill and ability to do things. God doesn't give Nehemiah this like leadership strategy like course load for him to carry around. This is, not, this is not a developmental plan. This is a new heart, a newly developed heart. That is what is happening. So look, I, I think in this world that you and I live in, um, the old guy that was the owner for the Raiders, I think he's since passed, but he had this phrase, uh, just win, baby. Anybody remember that? Look, Al Davis, just win, baby. Everything, all that mattered was just win. The whole world is telling you, and look, you guys specifically, the world is telling you just win. Just live your best life. Just do what you want. Just win. Just whatever it takes, just win. Just the ends will justify the means. In God's economy, character comes first. Experience with God comes before the things that we do. The, God, the world says, go do these things and you'll be loved. The gospel says, you're loved, so go do this. Do you see the difference? That's the gospel. That's vastly different than what the world is telling you. Go do this and you'll be accepted. No. The gospel says you're broken, you're sinful, 
You're in great trouble. You're in shame. Everything about your life has fallen down around you. And guess what? As you said earlier, Paxton, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Character comes before competency. Let God build us up into who we are, then we'll go do things. And look, here's the third thing that we see uh, in Nehemiah, to, to see his character, to see who he is before we see all the things that he does. This is how he prays. Number one, he prays with reverence of God's greatness. Second, in this way, the reality of his nearness. He's confessional in sin, and he prays promises that center on God's story, and he recognizes that all success comes from the Lord and not him. And here's my favorite part of the whole story and where... Uh, and the gospel is really beautiful in this moment. Um, this little phrase, um, look, on the other side of the story, being beyond the point where the fullness of time came, you and I see what Nehemiah was yet to see. The life of Jesus, who would be faithful for an Israel that was unfaithful. The death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection he doesn't see these things. Um, we have. And so here's what the gospel looks like in this story. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. But here's how much God loves you. Jesus is the king who becomes the cupbearer to you. Jesus is the king who becomes the cupbearer to you. He becomes the servant. He doesn't come... To be served, but to serve. Paul would say he takes the very form of a servant. Humbling himself even to the point of death, to death on a cross. And the cup that we've taken recently and that we'll take again. When we take that cup at communion... That's a cup the king has turned and given to us. And that cup is not just a wine that is not poison, but it's blood shed for the remission of our sins. It's a picture of his goodness to us. Could we remember that gospel truth this morning? Um, our worship team is going to come. Uh, and look, here's the thing. Uh, these moments, just being transparent, can be awkward because here's what's happening. Paxton's going to sing. We're going to sing. And then Hunter, I'm going to go ahead and have Hunter uh, go back. And he is going to take the Raoul family uh, and also the Frost family. So you guys can go ahead now um, and, and join Hunter. Told you it was going to be awkward. Right? Everybody's looking around like, do we know what we're doing here? We don't most of the time, probably, always. Um, but look, Hunter's going to go uh, prepare these families, and, and Molly and Sims are going to get ready to be baptized. It's going to be an incredible moment. And then we're going to have uh, families join as well. So in this moment, as Paxton uh, leads and the band plays and, and worship takes place, here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to, to pray in that way. To genuinely pray in such a way um, that, that you would recognize God's greatness, that you'd see his nearness, that you'd take this time that will be a little longer than normal and, and confess sin, and that you'd ask the Lord to help you be able to learn to pray promises to him. The promises he's given you so that you can be centered on the story, the truth, that life is about a new heart, a new life in Jesus. 
Um, I'll be down front uh, if you'd like to pray or talk. The altar is open uh, for prayer. I hope you'll take this moment uh, to reflect on, on who God is and what he's done in your life. Just pray with me briefly before we begin this season of worship. Um, God, draw our hearts to you in this moment. God, take, let us take time to, to see who we are. Um, God, to confess our need for you. God, would you make us, even beginning in this moment, people that come to you with the action of dependence and prayer before we seek to fix anything. And God, would we see that you are the one who has your hand upon us in all things. We have no picture that is greater than that, than the fact that you would give your son for us. In Christ's name, amen.